Now it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Michelle Holmes. Ms. Holmes is Vice President and Head of Partnerships for Alabama Media Group. She has been a John S. Knight Journalism Fellow at Stanford University, and she serves on the National Journalism Advisory Board at the Center for Collaborative Journalism. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Michelle Holmes. Hi there, thank you. I bring greetings from Alabama. So usually when anyone from Alabama is asked to talk on a panel, it's about one of two things. It's either social justice and civil rights, or it's college football. So you got the wrong person for college football, although I know some good people. So I'm here to talk with this really amazing panel tonight about uh, social justice journalism. So with no further ado, I want to introduce um, these distinguished journalists so Adam Clayton Powell um, carries really one of the most distinguished names in American media and public affairs for his career, those of his father, his grandfather, his son, his brother, wow, cousins, uncles, I don't know, it's, um, it's, it's a big family and very distinguished. So we're glad to have uh, Adam here with us. He now serves as director of Washington programs at USC Annenberg Center on Communication and Leadership Policy, which is really about cybersecurity. Uh, he's a veteran executive at NPR, CBS, the Freedom Forum, uh, many more news outlets. But really something that I hope we can bring out later is his experience along with his father and grandfather's experience of editing a weekly black newspaper. Um, we have with us uh, Carolyn Cole. Carolyn is a longtime photographer at the LA Times. She's reported for some of the hottest conflict zones uh, across the world. She was awarded a Pulitzer Prize in 2004 for her work um, in the siege of Monrovia. Uh, many, many other awards. We could spend the rest of this panel just going through your awards. Um, it's, it's amazing the work that you've done. Um, I want to call out that the Pulitzer judges noted Carolyn's work um, the special attention that she gave to innocent civilians caught in the conflict, and I think that really plays a role in social justice, and we'll talk more about that tonight. Um, and we have John Mulholland, uh, the editor of The Guardian US, uh, post he's held just since 2018, kind of storming in at a, at a great time in, in American uh, civic life. Um, as <laughs> It's a great time when you're a journalist. Uh, that's how this works. It's, it's very confusing. Um, but he's taken really bold public stands on the role of social justice and his commitment to his organization's future of championing causes of um, those who don't have the voice and the power that others may have. He previously served as the editor of The Observer, the British Sunday newspaper. Um, was born in Dublin and brings his accent uh, to our stage, so welcome. I really just want to jump in by defining the topic because social justice journalism uh, means a lot of things to a lot of people and it's not always the same. Um, so I'm going to jump right in with, with, with this idea of in a nation with really deeply divergent uh, values and sometimes shifting values, what social justice journalism, and how is that different from just a journalist deciding how the world ought to be? Adam, do you wanna take a stab at that one? There's journalism, which can be uh, traffic on the 405, can be the weather, can be C-SPAN carrying an event live in its entirety. Uh, so that's one, uh, uh, one circle. Then there's another circle of activism, where you are out to change something, stop something, promote something, and they, they overlap, but they're not the same. I think what we're talking about here is where they overlap, um, and that is a significant area, but it's also an area that uh, can be misunderstood, including by journalists, um, and so I think that's really where we're going great, tonight. Great, thank you. Thank you. Carolyn, you want to weigh in? Um, I'm not sure my mics are working. Okay, well, we could pass this along. Um, I'd like to talk about more like solution journalism. To me, um, we've got a lot of problems in our world right now. And so when I think of social justice, I think about trying to provide solutions through journalism that um, can solve some of these big problems like homelessness and the environment. Right. So. 
great, thank you. Uh, oh, I think mine okay, works. Okay, great. Mine, great. Um, I mean, I never thought specifically about social justice journalism as something apart from or different or unique. I just feel that, and I don't know what you call it, you could call it advocacy journalism, you could call it campaigning journalism, you could call it social justice journalism, but in addition to all of the other parts of the world, as Adam says, that you need to cover, whether that's lifestyle or culture or sport, I mean, for me personally, if we weren't doing the kind of journalism that sheds light on dark places and gives voice to people in communities that don't have one and uh, makes some attempt to right some wrongs, then, I mean, literally, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning to be a journalist because I think you're gifted with some degree of power, less probably than was the case 20 or 30 years ago, but there's still some power in having that voice and that platform, and I think you have to use it to try and... Uh, give that platform and that voice to other communities and to other people and to other causes. So, uh, you know, I, I think over here where there is a presumption of objectivity which has been a tenet of American journalism and, and the idea of kind of balance where both sides of an argument would always be given, is it's less the case in Britain where there is a much stronger tradition of campaigning journalism, which I suppose you would call social justice journalism. But, you know, it's absolutely part and parcel of what you would grow up to think is part of what you would do every day. And that would range from uh, newspapers on the left and the right. You know, some of the, the best campaigning journalism in Britain has been done by papers on the right. Uh, over the last 20 or 30 years, and one in particular by a newspaper I'm no great fan of called the Daily Mail, um, for all kinds of reasons, but it uh, ran a, a, a brilliant and courageous campaign about 20 years ago after the death of a young black British kid, and the police investigation into the murderers was inept and negligent, and the editor of that paper pursued that case uh, brilliantly and ran a front-page with the headline murderers and showing the pictures of the five white guys uh, and that provoked a renewed police investigation which led to the conviction of some of those people. So that tradition of, of campaigning journalism, which I suppose you'd call social justice journalism, is absolutely in the kind of DNA of British news organizations. So how do we know which campaigns are are worth waging. I mean, you look at the divided America in which abortion could be um, an issue that people have deeply divergent views on, and we can name many others. So, so what is it that, that a news organization or an individual journalist, what is their role in, in determining where do you put the resources, where do you put the, 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 the journalists and the focus? Adam, also, yes. also, uh, some of it, obviously, much of it has to rely on the, the judgment of the uh, journalists, plural, uh, who hopefully in any given newsroom bring very different perspectives. But there's something else which uh, we all bring with us, which is our contacts outside of the world mm -hmm. of journalism. There used to be something legally required in the United States of broadcasters. It was dropped at some point uh, about 30 years ago called ascertainment where you had to go out into the communities that you served and ask people what they thought was interesting. Uh, and some of the best stories uh, that I can recall are, are working on, uh, whether they were uh, spot news, uh, you know, one-off or campaigns, really came out of ascertainment because uh, uh, there, there's a, there was a reporter who covered uh, technology, Dan Gilmore, who's now at uh, uh, Arizona State, and he had a motto, which I think he had at, at his desk, which was, my readers know more than I do. Mm. And, uh, mm. and so I, I totally agree with that, that uh, we, we aren't by any means the center of all wisdom. We have to keep listening and watching to see what it is that, uh, uh, that others are trying to tell us. So I'd love to take a quick poll in the audience. Uh, how many of you are interested in playing that role? I mean, do you, do you want to lean in? We, many of us journalists want to hear what our audience thinks. And is, is that a role that you're comfortable with and that you want? I'd love to see a raise of hands if yes. Great. And how many of you feel like, as some reporters or some, uh, some audience members have told me, look, 
we want you to do the work, and, and, and our job is to consume this. Not, not many, not many. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Okay, I appreciate, appreciate the check-in because, you know, it, it, journalists are only really recently coming to um, think as much about the audience as uh, I think the um, audience wants to be thought about. Um, and so I, I really want to jump into the next part of that triad. I, I, I think often as we discuss the media, especially in public panels, we talk about the journalists, editors, the media, organizations themselves, but, and then we'll talk about the audience some increasingly, but what I want to ask about to now is those people who are the subjects, the people whose lives we intersect with, the stories that we tell. Carolyn, I wonder if you could, you know, you're, you're working from some of the world's most places filled with suffering, people whose families have been shattered, What's the responsibility you have to the subjects, and how do you think, how do you think about that? Well, um, I feel that when I go into these conflict zones or disaster zones, and I've covered so many of these, that um, I really am the eyes for the people that are not there, and so it is my responsibility to show what's happening there. Um, and I believe that almost any place in the world, they know what the role of the media is now. So simply by identifying myself and um, knowing that I'm there for, um, for the reason of reporting what's happening, I find that people are very receptive to me and that also it's very easy to tell if they're not receptive to me. So um, I, uh, I think that just having a clear perspective of why I'm there and what I'm covering um, has helped me um, in my approach. Have you, can you tell us a story about a time um, that you had any kind of follow-up with, with, a, with well, someone I do, who you... I did cover the Iraq war, so I was there before um, the shock and awe happened, and um, this was one of the great failures, I think, of American journalism, um, you know, that we were un unable to stop what happened in Iraq. Um, but visually, uh, I tried. We were there. We were trying to introduce the Iraqi people to the American people, trying to, um, you know, go around and, and look at some of the um, military sites. Um, and at one point, I was able to spend some time with an Iraqi family um, who were very open and receptive to having me there. And basically, um, at that point, people didn't really believe that the American troops would make it to, to Baghdad. Um, I did follow... I didn't follow their story closely, but I did go back towards the end of our occupation there. And um, they were very upset, very upset with what had happened um, at the end there. Um, there's been other cases um, where, um, for instance, I met a young woman in Afghanistan, um, and I was trying to show her progress and how women had made progress in, in Afghanistan. <laughs> And um, by taking her picture, she was actually learning to drive, which was, seemed like a big deal to me. And it was a very positive story about the advances that women had made. But um, about five years later, I heard from her and said that that, that photograph actually very negatively affected her and that mm. boys were contacting her and that it was, you know, shameful, even though I had gotten permission from the family and from her. So you really never know down the road what kind of an impact a photograph, which seems very innocent, can have on somebody's mm -hmm. life. Um, but in general, I, uh, th that's uh, the exception. I am normally here for so many people that, um, especially in the past, that um, are grateful to have somebody there to show, especially show what the American government is doing in all of these countries. Thank you. Anyone else want to weigh in on the topic of, of the people who you actually cover as a journalist? Well, you asked earlier, I think, just to Adam about how decisions are made about mm -hmm. what um, topics you choose to focus on. And I mean, obviously, we've got to increasingly listen to readers, and there is a much more engaged relationship with readers. But I think uh, you also have to listen to your staff, and it is becoming a much greater require requirement that that staff is as diverse as possible. And if there is one major change in journalism over the five, uh, last five years, I would say it's the uh, increased need, desire, and appetite to have a much greater number of voices represented amongst your staff. Because, you know, there are communities across America and just as there are across Britain who 
aren't listened to and who don't have a voice. And if you look at some of the major issues in America currently, whether that's um, the way in which a place like Cancer Alley is at the um, behest of huge petrochemical companies, and all of those companies are cited in some of the poorest parts of, um, of Louisiana. Very few of them have any kind of political support. Uh, that state is pretty much run by um, petrodollars. And if you look at big ag and the way it's polluting land and air and water, it's almost invariably in the poorest parts of America. Uh, the opioid crisis wreaked havoc in the poorest white parts of America. I doubt very much that Purdue could have got away with what they got away with if people were dying on that scale in New York and DC and San Francisco and LA. So those sorts of people are not represented in our newsrooms and I know for sure that The Guardian has a long way to go to bring those voices into our room where the decisions are made about what journalism we do because uh, I think you know, the, the recent history is littered with examples of uh, issues and topics which would have been addressed much more quickly had those voices been much closer to the forefront of journalism. Take a very recent example, St. Louis, uh, where 13 children under the age of 16, 13 black children under the age of 16 have died in the last three or four months. I don't know how many people in this room have been aware of that. Uh, if 13 white children had died in a city in America over the last three or four months, I suspect Donald Trump would well, have Well, let's ask the question. How many of you are aware? Wow, uh, I see essentially no hands. Yeah, and we, we've sent two journalists to St. Louis two weeks ago to spend a week mm -hmm. there to do that story for us next week. But, uh, you know, I think that's really shocking. And if it was happening to a different part of the population, I suspect Fox News and others would be all over it. So, Adam, I mean, wow, we're still talking about diversity in newsrooms. I mean, why, why, why hasn't this happened? Well, it's uh, National Public Radio, or NPR, as they prefer to call themselves now. Um, they've had a succession of diversity uh, point people. Uh, currently, it's a vice president. And, uh, uh, and yet, uh, they still have, have, have a problem in, in that area. And uh, I, I was quite amazed when I went, uh, when I arrived as vice president of uh, news uh, to discover that NPR had uh, no minority correspondents, anchors, senior editors, executive producers, um, and uh, it, it, it shocked me at first, but then I realized I should have been able to tell from the sound that that was the case. Um, and uh, we, we changed that in, in, uh, uh, rather rapidly in a couple of years. Um, and the audience increased 25%. Uh, we won every award in journalism. And uh, I think that uh, that was a classic success story in, in that area. Uh, one, I remember one story that uh, won an RFK award and uh, uh, another one was uh, when um, an African-American uh, uh, reporter who um, uh, I promoted to cover the White House came in one day and said, you know, where are all of the uh, young men? I don't see any young men in church anymore. I said, well, tell me about that. I said, well, I don't see any young men in church anymore. This was um, 1987. Um, and I said, uh, and then there were a couple of other people in the newsroom who were nodding. I said, um, let's gather some string on that. Uh, and uh, she wound up uh, producing, uh, stepping away from the White House for a while and producing uh, a four or five part series on uh, what was happening to young African-American men in the United States, uh, talking to uh, uh, gang members, going to um, uh, visit uh, uh, incarcerated uh, men, and, uh, and, and she came back and, uh, after the series and it was so draining uh, that uh, uh, she said that you know, sometimes she'd be talking to gang members who would just be making fun of her. They'd say, well, how much do you make? And she would say what her perfectly good income was, and they would sort of laugh and say, oh, come on, you know, we make so much more. Uh, now, of course, it's only for a short time, and, you know, but, 
but uh, that was an example of somebody literally walking into the newsroom with a life experience which then turned into something which uh, touched a lot of people. So, Carolyn, thank you for that. Uh, you, you mentioned that you've seen a difference at the LA Times recently with, uh, with a more diverse staff. What's that feel like, and, and what's the difference you think is, is happening? I think there has been um, a concerted effort to hire more, more minorities at the paper. I hope everyone's seeing it in the paper. Has anybody seen a difference in the LA Times? I think, I think it's a considerable difference, and uh, I think that'll continue. Um, Yeah, well, we've, we've had a bad uh, last 15 years, I'd say. It's been uh, pretty depressing, but I think we're on an uptick, and I think, um, I think that'll continue. Yeah, thank you. I, I want to I switch gears a little bit into um, the way news uh, is, 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 well, we can go on a whole other tangent on the way news is changing, but in relation to the idea of how social justice and journalism interact. Really, one is, we, we had a phrase we used to use, and I'm, I'm sure that's familiar to you, is the voice of God. And it was pretty much the man in the suit uh, behind the, the nightly news desk. And it was very authoritative. And uh, it, it sounded formal. It sounded like everything is okay. We have all the answers. But uh, that's really changing in media. And John, I, I, your team did a terrific series recently. Um, Shades of Black. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit as a first-person series, why mm. you chose to do it that way. Mm. And, and so, yeah, uh, Shades of Black was a series we ran over four days, which was about discrimination within communities of color and the politics of light and uh, dark skin. The idea actually came from a fellow that we brought into The Guardian for a period of six months under a diversity fellowship that we had, and we recruited uh, four uh, diversity fellows. And in the course of her interview, at the very start, uh, before she was even recruited, she brought up this idea of colorism, the, the politics of discrimination within communities of color. And from that moment, we decided to work with her. She had no experience in journalism, and we surrounded her with senior editors and after three or four months, we produced this three or four day series, which was largely edited and curated by people of color within The Guardian. And by that, I mean photographers, graphic designers, and most of the senior editors. And it was a, an attempt to let people tell their own stories. So we did major on personal stories. And the lead piece was written by uh, that fellow, who uh, is a dark-skinned African-American who wrote about the prejudice that she feels. And I think the headline was something like, why I, as a dark-skinned uh, African-American, will never get married. And she didn't mean that literally, but she was talking about the life chances that will be uh, smaller for her than for other people. Uh, and, and we wanted to provoke a discussion, and we made sure that we engaged with people and set up Twitter pages and Facebook pages, and it did create a very significant dialogue, and we ran a piece at the end of that week on the feedback that we had had from people from Spain, from the UK, from Canada, from the United States, but it was almost entirely based on the life stories and experiences of people, and we simply provided them with a platform to tell those stories. So I'd love to dig a little bit deeper with that. I mean... What's the shift? What's the shift that underlies this personal storytelling? Uh, is this something that younger audience are demanding? Is this a better way to tell the story? Do you think more and more journalism is going into this first-person kind of approach? I, no, I don't, because I don't think it's a case of only doing that journalism. This felt like the right approach for this particular topic and to get at those really human and emotional stories. but it did also address the kind of systemic and structural issues involved in colorism. But we also did a, a series over the last year called Anti-Racism in America, and it was curated by uh, one of our journalists, but also by co-curated by Ibram Kendi, 
uh, who authored the acclaimed Stamped from the Beginning, in which he discusses the rise of um, anti-racism and how to become an anti-racist, because it doesn't mean that you're not racist. You have to actively try and dismantle the structures and systems and processes that are put in place, whether it's in education policy or criminal justice policy, uh, that prevent African-Americans and people of color from realizing their full potential. So that was a very cerebral and intellectual approach to discussing race and politics in America. And that certainly had fewer people reading it, but they were probably a different audience from the people who came in and read Shades of Color. So I don't think it's uh, an either or. I think you can provide different outlets and different formats and different tones and different registers for different types of audiences. Yeah, thank you. Adam, your, 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 your news experience ran such a gamut. Um, were, there, were there ways that you really found helped bring big issues of social justice most effectively to the audience? Um, were there ways that you really used to tell the, help your reporters tell those stories? And are they the same now or are they changing? Well, some things I hope are not changing. Uh, but uh, some things are. I think that one, one thing that was always very important, and I spent most of my career in, uh, in national media, CBS News and mm -hmm. NPR um, and uh, ABC News, uh, one thing that was very important was to make certain, um, and, it, and it was one of your points before we came on stage, uh, that there was geographic uh, uh, diversity that uh, whatever story you're doing, whether it's uh, education or, or colorism or uh, 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 the uh, environment, uh, being able to tell that story through um, having the luxury of correspondence in different parts of the United States, different parts of the world, um, uh, that always made it, uh, uh, in my opinion, more interesting. And if there's a truism, I think that, it's, that more reporting uh, makes, makes it better. And so if you have uh, reporters from different parts of the world or different perspectives uh, looking at the same issue or the same problem, uh, that almost certainly makes it better. But on the really big stories, um, uh, Watergate uh, uh, is a great example. My instruction over and over again on a really big breaking story, uh, Watergate, New York City running out of money, uh, huge stories. Only report what you know, uh, or only report and attribute what somebody else is saying. Because uh, yes, we might think we know what's going on, we might be almost certain that we know what's going on, but that's not journalism. Maybe that's fortune telling, that's not journalism. You have to, and on a big story, you have to be very careful. You have to write what you know, and usually what you know is, is quite a bit, uh, without uh, uh, straying into areas where you can get into trouble. So writing what you know, and you know, sometimes that's what we hear, I think, from audience members all the time, uh, is why don't you stick to the facts? Why don't you just tell the story that you know? Do you, are you met with um, with readers, viewers who question sort of some, some of these approaches to telling and trying to solve big problems rather than just reporting the news that exists? Uh, not if you present it uh, from a point of view of, uh, I don't want to get this misinterpreted, not from the present if you present it from the point of view of the audience, not the audience uh, as an abstract, but uh, the audience in, in the uh, even more uh, diverse sense than, uh, than any newsroom can, uh, can represent. If you think about how, one of my favorite, I think, undercovered stories uh, for years, for decades, is education. That shows up as at or near the top of the list in every ascertainment uh, interview that we've done uh, and yet education reporting is uh, not, as, um, not as strong as it, as it, as it should be. 
Uh, I know that um, uh, Norm Perlson at the, at the LA Times is talking about making some changes in that area and investing some resources there. Uh, because uh, anybody who has a, uh, uh, a child, brother, sister, grandchild, you know, that, that's something that runs through, uh, through so many families and yet uh, uh, and is a continuing problem. Uh, there was a story that I just uh, uh, was relaying to people this morning that was in the uh, New York Times about how um, in, in 13 different communities, they have resegregated the schools. And how do they do that? The schools in the white neighborhoods simply withdrew from the school district. And there were, um, if I recall correctly, uh, six of the 13 were in the South. That means seven of the 13 were not in the South. And the Times presented this as a, as a, as a trend. Well, that's really pretty interesting. Uh, uh, and I think that uh, we can all see where something like that, uh, where something like that, something like that goes, uh, but just the um, uh, having lots of relatives in schools, uh, uh, there are so many things you can talk about there. Uh, some of which involve just the teaching, some of which involves uh, how uh, how schools are run, uh, but a lot of it is just what what our priorities are. Um, uh, uh, as people, I'm sorry, I could go on. Well, let, let me, let, that, that's a great point, and I'd like to throw it out to all of you, is what are our priorities as people? I think, um, pardon? Education, so, it, it, and education, yes, it, it, a huge priority for many people, but you know what? We're not all the same, and, and one of the things that, that, that we face as journalists is, is this left-right divide in America. And so, you know, anyone who may be listening to this podcast sounds like the three of you are coming from an ideological perspective that's somewhat the same. I could take a guess, um, or it's at least coming out that way here. Um, so so how, how are we speaking to all Americans around social justice issues, or are we? John, you want to take a crack at well, that? Well, I mean, I do think there, you know, I do think there are issues which are not split along ideological grounds, and that do escape the kind of bifurcated ideological mess that the country is in. And, you know, I think something like voting rights is one of those, and it's been a, a topic that's not been talked about for very much in this country for a long time. But as most of you will know, the Voting Rights Act was gutted in 2013 and uh, there was no longer federal oversight of what states could do and are doing to prevent certain people from voting. And uh, last year during the midterms, voting rights became an almost mainstream topic, I think, because of what was happening in Georgia and Florida. And I was talking to uh, an editor in Iowa, um, Art Cullen, who edits a small local newspaper in Iowa called the Storm Lake Times, and he won a Pulitzer for his reporting on big agriculture and the polluting of a local, local lake two years ago. And I asked him whether voting rights is making any impression last year, and he said, you know, there are fair-minded Americans who are concerned about fairness in the electoral system, and they don't consider that a ideological issue about whether or not every American should have the right to vote. Of course, there are extreme activists in parties, mostly on the Republican side, who are wishing to restrict the vote to white, rich people, to be br blunt about it. But I, I, I think most Americans would agree that uh, enfranchisement goes to the heart of what America is supposed to be, and denying the right to vote for certain communities is wrong. So I, I think, and equally, and I think, again, there is a growing kind of protest movement against the kind of impacts that big ag is having across the Midwest. Again, whether that's polluting land, um, hog slurries, polluting water, polluting air, they're probably mostly Republican voters, and I, I, so I think it's wrong for us to be thinking that there are not issues that we can all collectively agree on need addressing. Thank you. Carolyn, oh, go I, ahead, I, I'm Adam. just going to jump in. Mm -hmm. I, I think that for the last nine years um, uh, in, in Washington, uh, it wasn't my idea, so I can, I can brag about it. Uh, we've been convening at the uh, University of Southern California office in D.C. 
uh, meetings of uh, uh, politicians of both parties, uh, uh, researchers, uh, people from the corporate world, uh, and each of these meetings, which tend to happen about every three months, is to address a particular problem. And it, it, being in Washington, sometimes it's an, a, a regulatory issue, sometimes it's a legal issue. And by doing these meetings, completely off the record with people who sometimes can't even be seen publicly together, it's that polarized, uh, we can actually, around the table, reach agreement. Uh, and uh, I remember one of, one of our, our meetings, somebody from one of the regulatory agencies said, well, you know, some of us are embarrassed by this. And so um, we can really uh, uh, look at the changes and make these changes. And one of the um, members of, of Congress who was at the table, um, it was the, the Democrat, uh, began to laugh. And I said, are you okay? Uh, do you need some coffee, something stronger? And she said, no, it's just that I think we're about to agree on something, and uh -huh. we don't do that here. Yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, Carolyn, I, I, you know, we talked earlier about what you see as the biggest growing issue that you're really dedicating your, the rest of your career to. Can you talk about that? Well, I mean, I feel that we got very distracted after 9-11 and spent many, many years covering conflicts, and um, all that time our environment was just going downhill. So after covering the BP oil spill, I just decided that I wanted to completely change my focus and, and pretty much do an, an entirely environmental stories. So that's what I've been working on at the Times now, and I think that's a subject that we can all agree about. I mean, the burning of, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, the forests and uh, the oceans uh, heating up. And these are all topics that it's, it's obvious now that something has to be done. So um, I think we do need a more active, uh, proactive. So what's that look like for you as, as a photojournalist who, who believes that, that climate and, and the environment is really the, the most pressing social justice issue going forward? What does that look like in, this, in the kinds of stories you want to tell? Um, in the way you want to tell them? Um, well, this year alone, I've visited the Marshall Islands twice. We've got a big series coming out on the Marshall Islands this month. Um, I've been up to Alaska doing something on um, the gold mine that they want to put up there at the headwaters of the Chinook uh, Salmon Run, um, no, Sockeye Salmon Run. Um, they're just too numerous. I can't even, I'm so busy, I can't even get to, mm -hmm. to all of them. Um, it's just nonstop now. Uh, uh, and luckily, we've hired a lot of environmental reporters at the LA Times now, so we have a pretty good team of, I think, seven environmental reporters um, and uh, a few of the photographers that want to focus on that. So um, there's no lack of subjects or um, um, things that need to be done. But it's, it's a bit of a conundrum, right? As a journalist, you're, 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 you're putting your career to something that the President of the United States is essentially saying uh, is a, is a non-issue. Is that 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 climate isn't the crisis that you see? Mm -hmm. So, how do you square? Like, who decides? How how do you how do you do climate coverage? And and John, I'd love you to to jump in here as well. How do you do climate coverage that speaks to, you know? people of, of various belief systems. Well, I mean, just recently when I was doing the, um, the, oil, the, the Alaska story, <clears throat> it's not if difficult to cover both sides of the story. I am very old school. I think it, you do need to you know, interview the oil company president as well as the Native, <clears throat> the Native Americans that are going to be impacted or you know, the fishermen or you know, the... Um, the um, commercial fishermen as well as the recreational fishermen. I think there's ways of doing those stories that are balanced, but that are still um, hitting the main points. I mean, that are still exposing what's happening uh, in those areas. So um, I think for somebody like myself, uh, it's hard for me to then become an advocate journalist or somebody that's more, um, you know, of, of an opinion photographer. I, I, I don't think I'll be able to reach that. I think that I see a lot of young journalists that are very comfortable um, exposing more about their own personal feelings and what they feel about issues. And, and in fact, I think the newspaper is encouraging the journalists to do that. But for somebody like myself, it's much harder to change that. Yeah. John, I mean, the, the, the science uh, and the president don't always disagree, or, or, or often disagree on this topic. I mean... The, the president. 
The president of the United States, yes. And, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and his point of view on yeah. climate. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, how do you approach that? Is, do you give two equal sides there, or, or well, do you not? Um, I mean, I do think climate is covered differently in the States than it has been covered in Europe and places like England, Germany, and Northern Europe over the last 20 years. Now, I don't think, I mean, I do think US coverage is catching up, but I think for a long time, it was a long way behind coverage of climate and environment in Europe. And the reason for that was, you know, the fossil fuel industry in this country poured enormous amounts of money for 15 or 20 years up until the early 200s into a campaign that more or less convinced newspapers here and certainly legislators and politicians that climate change was a theory, not a scientific fact. Uh, they poured millions and billions of pounds, and you can read Mark Herzegar, the environment editor of The Nation, who's covered this topic. Uh, and it led to organizations like The New York Times into this false equivalency, where on, until the mid-200s, The New York Times were giving uh, pretty much equal space mm -hmm. to people who were act, um, uh, denying climate change mm -hmm. and others who were uh, presenting the scientific facts. And that false equivalency only really fell away in the last 15 years. And that's a direct result of the lobbying money that the fossil fuel industry uh, placed on in, in DC, and it affected the, the news organizations of this country. That was never the case in Europe, and I think the reporting of climate in, in Britain and Northern Europe has been far more vigorous and uh, far more sustained than it has been here. But I do think the way to cover it is, again, is real people's experiences. Mm -hmm. President Trump may be, and indeed is, saying what he's saying, but you, know, you, you speak to farmers in the Midwest, they know the climate is changing, they're living with it every day, and they can see that their crops are not, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that the soil is too wet this year to grow corn and soybeans. They can see crops that were once grown in South Dakota moving to North Dakota. Avocado farmers in Southern California know that they haven't got sufficient water to keep their business running. Lobster farmers on the East Coast can see the lobsters moving to uh, colder water up towards Canada. Uh, you know, I think that people may not want to uh, take a political side because it's become a partisan political issue, but their lived real experience is telling them that things are happening to climate, and I think those are the stories you have to tell. Yeah, thank you. So I know we're getting close to the end of our time, and I would be really remiss to not ask a really quick question about the financial pressures that journalism is under and whether that's really, um, how that's impacting the kind of big work, the, the work that, that we, if, if any of you saw the fantastic Gordon Parks exhibit that this um, panel kind of came um, under that auspice of, of, of deep, rich work in covering um, a Brazilian family in the favelas. Um, that's, that's when there was lots and lots of money to send people around the world telling stories. How do you do that now? I, I think at the times um, we're, we're picking and choosing a little more carefully now. Um, uh, we certainly, our foreign staff shrunk tremendously, so I think we are gonna try to focus more on the Southwest California, um, but we are still picking s some stories that are abroad, and um, um, I think hopefully with this uh, new surge of money that we'll be able to to increase our advertising um, and hopefully some digital subscriptions. But it's it's always challenging, and um, I'm not sure we're going to make it. Actually, you know, I'm pretty scared that you know that Patrick soon has said he'll sign on for 10 years, but I'm not, I'm not sure we'll actually make it that long. We'll just have to see. Thank you. I mean, I think Carolyn's right. You have to pick your targets, and if there's only a finite number of resources, then for me, you have to ask yourself is, you know, the, how much point is there covering some of the journalism that everybody else is covering, and you're better off trying to have an impact in areas that are being less well covered and you know for us over the course of the next year we will put a lot of resources into covering the issue of voting rights as a central part of the u.s election campaign there'll be a lot of people covering whether 
you know, Sanders is two points behind Warren or above Warren, and all of those kind of horse race uh, debates will be covered uh, continuously over the next year, but we will choose to put resources in an area that is maybe less well discussed. But I think one other point about... And, and uh, we're going to have to keep... Okay. We'll, we'll make the point quick, because yep. I think we want to make sure we get to our audience. No, I just want to say that okay. you know, at a time when resources for established news organizations is sometimes limited and is declining, there are other forms of news that are emerging. And I think if you look at the role that not-for-profits and NGOs are playing, and you, 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 know, you go onto the website of the Center for Reproductive Rights or Fight for 15, they look like news sites. And those organizations, I think, have stepped into an area where they can present themselves as almost campaigning, advocacy-style journalists, even though they started out as NGOs or social justice organizations, and they can use the platforms on social media to gain real traction. I mean, go onto any of those sites, and, and they have news features, news yeah. alerts, and That's above that, they'll have join, act, give, or whatever. So, I, you know, there are other uh, platforms moving into the space that legacy news organizations used to occupy. For sure, and, and maybe our audience will ask some about that. So, um, I, are we going to, are ready for audience questions? We're about ready for Q&A, but everyone, everyone please give a round of applause for our panelists yeah. and for our wonderful moderator. Mm -hmm. uh, my name is Jochen Haber, and uh, I just want to say, all of you on the stage, um, you're probably close to extinction. <laughs> and I want to know what... What are you doing to actually present uh, social justice to people who will actually listen to you? Nobody's reading papers anymore. Um, I, I think the, the question is, is uh, if we believe in social justice journalism, how is the news industry going to keep itself afloat to continue to produce it? Is that a fair statement? Okay. Uh, how is the how are news organizations going to keep themselves alive financially? Okay. Not as many readers. Yeah. So how well, do we reach people? I mean, for the Guardian, you know, the the number of people who read our journalism in the printed form is now, you know, tiny. So, you know, we're not relying or expecting to uh, reach our readers via newspapers. I mean, we've got well beyond the stage where, uh, although it's still a significant form of revenue for us, we have to try and get to the places where audiences are. And that's decreasingly in a newsprint environment. So, I mean, I think if, if what you're saying is, how are we going to reach people who need to read us or want to read us? Well, you know, we have huge audiences on different social media platforms or in various um, digital spaces, and although the newspaper is still an important part of our kind of financial ecosystem, it's less and less important as a avenue for us to deliver the social justice journalism that we're doing, and, and not least because it is a much slower way of engaging with readers and getting feedback, and when we did that Shades of Black series you know, most of the feedback that we had and most of the energy that was created was created on uh, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. So I, I think the answer is that we have to get to where the readers are and it, it's not anymore in newsprint. And I think that the point of other platforms and other, I mean, I, I'm really a recovering journalist uh, uh, since I'm uh, now in the world of universities and cybersecurity. But we're looking at uh, attacks on democracies by adversaries, uh, foreign and domestic, uh, whether it's on an election in India or Indonesia or on what's coming here next year. And part of what we're doing at, at USC is uh, it, it, something which the LA Times or The Guardian might also do, but in a different way. It's public education about these attacks, what, uh, what's coming, what can you do, uh, the way you lock your door, front door at night, uh, what can you be doing to, uh, to help protect yourself? It's not journalism as traditionally defined, but it is uh, public service. 
So it's going to come in different ways, uh, ProPublica in a journalism way, but uh, I think there are others, uh, uh, and not just USC, but other universities and other uh, right. nonprofits are looking at different ways of doing public service. Hi, my name is Julia Xu. Thank you so much for being here. I have a question about a reporting on the environment. Um, some people say it's time to panic because we don't have that many years left uh, when we can still turn the thing around. But some people say, oh no, we shouldn't cause panic or too much anxiety, especially for the kids. So what kind of public reaction you or your organizations are looking for? When it, when it comes to climate, um, the fear of uh, how do we tell this story without really inducing widespread panic and fear, especially among children? So how are your news organizations, and I think this would be aimed at the two of you, um, well, and Carolyn? I personally think that this is not on. <laughs> Let's give it a try. Actually, I think that's what's required. I think we're in a really drastic situation. And panic, I mean, people should be frightened. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry if the children are going to be frightened, but I have PTSD about the future, not about the past. I mean, I think we're in a really critical stage. And photography, I think, is the one thing that does speak to young people. Um, that's what they're looking at. So, you know, even though I'm old-timer, I, I feel like photography as one way of reaching a younger audience, and as we look at um, Greta Thunberg, we see that the young people are the ones that are taking the charge. So um, not that the journalism had anything to do with what she's doing, but um, I think she can lead and, and, and um, the young people can lead and that I think photography has a big role in that. The panel, my name's Irene Sanchez. Um, given that we're in a country that has 60 million Latino people and 35 million of that are Mexican descent, I'm just curious because I didn't hear that community mentioned tonight. Um, what do you see as the role of social justice and journalism impacting the Latino community, but particularly given what happened in El Paso, Gilroy, um, and the events that followed and the coverage that followed, how do you see um, journalism and social justice playing a role in reaching out to those communities too? Uh, reaching out to Hispanic Americans, to... Right, to the, the to Latino communities yeah. across yeah. across the United States. Yeah. I mean, again, for us at The Guardian, it has to be about diversifying our staff so that um, Latin communities are represented. And, you know, we have so much... I, I think it, that is one of the communities that we need to better represent, but I think there are communities across America that we need to represent better. And the El Paso shooting was probably a point at which, you know, we realised that our staff wasn't... Um, nearly diverse enough to be able to reach out to those communities and speak to them in a way that was as empathetic as you might want at a time like that. So, uh, you know, I think there are things that we can do with our voting rights project. We'll be teaming up with Voto Latino, which I'm sure, as you know, is a social justice organization which is um, determined to try and increase uh, voter turnout amongst uh, Latino communities. So in our own small way, we are at least recognizing that we need to do more, and we've uh, pledged to be represented at the Hispanic American Association of Journalists uh, this year and next year, and we will use that as an attempt to try and recruit a more diverse staff on our part. Well, the reason why I ask is because... Um I teach Chicano Latino studies, but I also um, authored one of few pieces after <laughs> the, the El Paso incident, but particularly because of Gilroy. So I think it is a concern because there is 60 million, and I think one of you mentioned about uh, geographic diversity. And I feel like even though we're in Los Angeles, and even though this is the Southwest, um, there's some things lacking in terms of representation of that voice of these different and diverse Latino communities. But um, so I don't know if there is an easy answer okay. to push further on, but I just remember okay. one of you saying about geographic diversity. So um, if you could speak more to that, because I think a lot of the news that we do see is coming from this East Coast lens, and so then it gets applied to the Southwest or to incidents like El Paso. Um, so I'm just wondering, what can you see changing in terms of that, especially because 
I know journalism has to appeal probably to the whole nation, right? But um, how can you diversify that in terms of voice so that it is coming from places? Um, because there is a significant population here of Latinos in the Southwest, not just in LA, but I mean, you take LA by itself, there's a lot. So how can we diversify that even further? Because I think it needs more work. The editor of the LA Times realized that this is a huge problem and he's, you know, they're working on hiring more people. But this is a very challenging city when you think about how many communities there are to cover, how many different ethnicity, ethnic groups. It's, it's not a small task, and we have lost a lot of our staff. So um, we're rebuilding, and I know that diversity is the number one thing on, on when it comes to, to gaining more people in, on the staff. For a couple of years, I was news director of a station in New York, and used to be a, I used to keep a big map of uh, the New York metro area uh, uh, on the wall of the newsroom. And I started putting pins uh, in the map when we did stories outside of City Hall, outside of whatever. And I noticed that there were certain areas that had no pins. And so one day, I, it was a Friday when I had more reporters than, than any other day, um, uh, one reporter came in and said, okay, what would you like me to do today? I said, well, you know, we haven't heard from Northeast Queens. There are about a quarter of a million people who live there, maybe as many as 350,000. And we haven't had any news from there, uh, including in script, let alone from camera crews, why don't you go out there and see what's going on? He said, oh, great, uh, where's the wire copy? No wire copy. Oh, well, uh, uh, okay, where are the newspaper clips? No newspaper clips. Well, what do you want me to do? I want you to go to those 350,000 people and find out what's going on. I mean, I know there's a weekly newspaper there. They've got, they've got cops, they've got firefighters, they've got school teachers. Mm -hmm. Go out and spend the day and find out what's going on. And he grumbled for a while, oh, crazy news director. But he went out to Northeast Queens and uh, on, on the you know, car radio in the afternoon, he said, this is great, I've got four terrific stories. I said, well, don't talk about it on the car radio, Brand X, our competitor is listening. Uh, uh, you, you can call me on the phone, but, uh, 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 and I think that's a lot of what journalism needs, is to identify those areas where there aren't any pins and say, what's going on there? Uh, and, uh, uh, and indeed one problem was that there was no one in our newsroom who came from anywhere in Eastern Queens where, I don't know, about what, 600,000 people live. Hi, you guys did amazing. Thanks for you know, coming here and sharing all this information with us. Um, my question is regarding the point that one made about climate change coverage and how it was influenced um, by the funds used to disguise it, at least in the US for so long, while, you know, different agencies in, in Europe were covering it more realistically according to the scientific evidence. Um, having said that, is there money being used to influence the rhetoric, the rhetoric of the media, at least in the US, um, and why? As well as part two, you said social media coverage and pages take a step to inspire the truth or bring out authenticity in, in like the stories that are being, that we hear about, and that's kind of the first step here, at least in the US, is that the first step that's gonna influence media on a bigger scale, that like CNN, Fox News, and this and that? Wow, you've just set us up for a whole other panel, so. <laughs> Good question. What was the, what the first? So the, the second one is social media yeah, and, and how it grows. But the, the first is really what's the role of money in influencing how American news organizations cover climate? Is that, is that accurate? Yes, basically. Okay, all right. Well, I mean, I don't think it's as influential as it was. I mean, I, I was referring to a period between about 1985 and 2000s when huge amounts of money was poured in. And as I said, climate change became uh, a theory, not a fact, and they challenged all of the available science. I think they are less influential because, you know, there are large corporations in, in America now who have quite young uh, millennial employees who are challenging their companies to do better. And 
you can see that not just in climate change, but you can see that across tech companies where there's a huge amount of activism. Uh, well, in fact, in climate, the Amazon workers have taken Bezos to task and he's now pledged that Amazon will be, I think, carbon neutral by something like 2030 or 2035. And that was a direct result of groups of Amazon workers um, agitating over a relatively short period of time. And I think that's just one of a huge number of examples where these companies are no longer going to be able to um, you know, decide the roadmap themselves because there's a, a new generation of employees who are demanding that those companies act differently. And, uh, and, and also those employees won't want to work for the kinds of companies that drove that kind of fossil fuel, fuel uh, propaganda of 20 years ago. You know, I, so I, I, do th I do think there's a great deal of hope in terms of the kind of pressure that has been put on bosses, but also on shareholders from a new generation. And Greta Thunberg is the epitome of that. But I think there are tens and hundreds of thousands of other Greta Thunbergs who are doing things locally within their organizations. You know, The Guardian, there's representative senior executives from The Guardian here we are under a huge amount of pressure to create a very sustainable business. Uh, and in fact, there's a review underway at the moment to see how we can improve on that. So I, I guess the short answer is I think they will have less impact. And also businesses are waking up to it. I mean, you know, businesses know that there is an impact, an economic dividend from climate. Um, the New York Times had a report three, year, three months ago saying that the biggest businesses in, in America expected to take a five billion pound hit from climate over the next 10 years. You know, insurance companies see it happening, health companies see it happening because there are health impacts of climate, uh, building companies see it happening. So, you know, if you follow the money on climate, it's going to lead to a bad place unless changes are going to be made. So I, I think money will talk in a different way in America over the next 20 years on climate. Thank you. And we'll have to, to answer your second question out in the patio with the beer and wine, I think. Um, so thank, thank you to all of you who asked questions. <laughs>